Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Sarah, for leading us in the worship and the team this morning. Um, as Xavier said, next week uh, we'll be at family camp. Pastor Sean will be up there sharing a message with us there at family camp. Laura will be leading worship up there. And Sarah has graciously said yes to leading worship again next week here. So there will be a service here at 9 o'clock. Uh, with that. So Sarah will be doing that. Derek will be bringing the message. And so you guys, uh, those of you that won't be at family camp, uh, you can be here at nine o'clock and, um, and sharing that together. So this morning, I want to share with you a message out of Second um, Timothy, a title of the message, Living in Today's World. Because as I started thinking about some different things uh, going on today and things that had happened in the past and, and just you know, different things throughout my life, this message was kind of just kind of gnawing at me a little bit. It uh, felt like, you know, I needed to kind of maybe um, call us back to our focus of where we needed to keep our eyes fixed in the midst of all the stuff that's kind of going on around us today. Um, 30 years ago, I was licensed uh, for pastoral ministry in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And that was, and all 30 years of that have been here at Trinity Alliance Church. And then seven years before that, uh, I was a custodian and a facilities manager at the church where Sherry and I met and grew up and were married. And, and I, I, got to, I got to learn a lot of things about church ministry in that seven years in that. As a matter of fact, I think every pastor, Xavier, you listen to this? No, he's out with the kids. Never mind. <laughs> Tell him this, okay? <laughs> every pastor, before they are licensed, before they go into pastoral ministry, needs to spend one year Sweeping floors and cleaning toilets. <laughs> Sean? Yeah, okay. Because you learn things about what it means to serve. You learn things about uh, the, the, um, the habits of people. I mean, you know, you're going through... Okay, I'm going to pick on you guys a little bit. Maybe not. I hope not. I hope you don't take this personal. But... We don't have pews, so I'm safe, right? When you're going through pews and you're picking up trash out of, you know, the pews that adults leave, you're like, come on, these guys are grown-ups. What are they doing? But you know what the upside of that is? You get to read all the neat notes that you guys leave behind. <laughs> oh, stories. I actually have a file from ones that I pulled out that the youth group left and writing notes back and forth that the kids wrote. Oh, the parents only knew. Anyhow. So that was a very valuable time for me. I look at those seven years as, as more valuable than any undergrad or grad work I ever did. Because I learned things about ministry and, and sharing. And I had a mentor in Pastor Ron. He was our senior pastor. I had a mentor there. He was kind of like a Paul to me. And I was kind of felt like I was in Timothy's shoes. Uh, and, and Ron knew where I was, uh, where I felt the Lord was calling me to and whatnot. And we, we always didn't get along. We had times where we would disagree. But those were good times. Those were things that we would learn. And, 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 and I would learn a lot of things from him of what it meant to minister. I, I saw the challenges. I saw the blessing. I saw all those kinds of things. That was in the 1980s. And it seemed like it was a much simpler time. Sounds like an old person's phrase, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, right? Okay. <laughs> but, you know, honestly, I look back on it in the 80s and in the 90s, even when I first started here at Trinity back in the 90s, it seemed like society, it had its issues, but it seemed like it was so much simpler. It seemed like ministry was so much simpler. 37 years later, what are we faced with? 
In a word, what I see in society, we're faced with confusion. There's a lot of confusion out there. Take the whole issue of sexual identity. That's the easy one, right? We're hearing about all of that. And, and, and if, you, if you've been following any of this, it is completely turned upside down. I had to, I'm in the process of taking a sexual harassment training for the fire department, okay? And this thing is a one hour long training. I'm halfway through it because that's all I could stand about halfway through it. Because in that, they, they start going through and they start talking about uh, sexuality that, no, your sex is not determined at birth. It's assigned by a doctor when you're born. So when you get older, you can determine whether you want to be male or female, whether you want to be binary or non-binary, whether you want to be... Uh, <laughs> all of these terms, all this stuff that's created. Back in the day, it was male and female. Man, woman. Now it's everything in between and common, and you can pick and choose and put it in a blender and get whatever you want out of it. Because we have, as a society, said no to the created order. Remember that term Pastor Sean brought up a couple weeks ago? About in Genesis, there is a created order where God has said he's created them male and female. And there is a role and there is responsibilities. And there is a, there is a union that occurs there. There is life to be into that. And what has happened is, is we have rejected the created order. We exchange the glory of an incorruptible God for things and definitions and phrases in the form of corruptible man. And we've said no to God. That's just one area where, there, where it seems like now there's more confusion there. But yes, we, back in the 80s, we, we had the whole uh, homosexuality issues and we were wrestling with those things, but nothing like what we're faced with today. Nothing like what we're faced with today. Take that along with the fact that now we're seeing in our society today where we're calling good evil and evil good. People can burn cars, destroy businesses, and kill people, and if the end justifies the means, it's good. Not so back in the day. You can walk into a store now and you can shoplift items. As long as it's less than 950 bucks, you're good. You most likely won't even be charged. You most likely won't even be arrested. You, you can, and, and that's called good because these people have needs and so the end justifies the means. So go in and, and steal. You know, you remember, the, you guys remember the riots last fall? We saw all that stuff that was going on and, and, and different and this is not about politics, by the way, people. I'm not talking about Democrat versus Republican or anything else. I'm just talking about observation of the human condition. You just watch what's going on. You just read about it. It doesn't matter what your politics is. It's, it's that people are behaving badly, okay? And, and we saw that. On the, we saw people who were overturning cars and burning buildings in, in Portland, in Seattle, in, in Chicago, in New York City, in Minneapolis. Minneapolis looked like a bomb was destroyed in there. It looked like Nagasaki all over again in some places. And we called it good. In L.A., there was a TJ Maxx. They had a video on it. These guys walked in. They had bags of stuff that they had put in the bags, walked right by the security guards, right out like they were walking to get on an airplane. Nobody stopping them. They weren't arrested as far as I know to this point. 
don't know if they could identify him. In San Francisco, there was a smash and grab on a high-end retailer there. And, and everybody just stood by and watched. And the police department couldn't do anything. They were told not to do nothing because the DA won't prosecute. Walgreens in the Bay Area closed nine stores in the Bay Area because they were losing so much money to shoplifting and all these things. They said, we've got to curb this. So they chose to close nine stores. What does that do to the workers of those nine stores? What is all... And yet we're calling that good? Target decided they would take their hours in the Bay Area and, and they, they reduced their hours from 9 to 9, from 9 in the morning till 2 in the afternoon in hopes that by having shorter hours, it would discourage people from shoplifting. There wouldn't be enough time for them to gather up and get in there and do it. Now, I need to make a disclaimer here. Because up until a couple of days ago, everything that was happening in the Bay Area and I don't know about LA, but everything that was happening in the Bay Area was largely being ignored. And finally, the Chamber of Commerce in the Bay Area, in San Francisco specifically, appealed to Sacramento to deal with this. And right now, Sacramento, uh, they signed a, a bill or a, an executive order for the California Highway Patrol to put together a task force to investigate this. We'll see what that does. We don't know what that means, but something's happening, okay? But the point is this. All of this stuff has been going on around us. You couple that with the fires that are burning. Well, fire is no stranger to us, but it seems like it's been getting worse, doesn't it? Got a couple of doozies burning right now. We've had three or four already burned this year, destroyed a lot of acreage, a lot of homes. Fortunately, not, not many fatalities. The floods and things that are going on. I mean, if you look at everything that's going on around us and everything that I just said, things look pretty, pretty bleak. I mean, it's a bummer, right? I mean, just hold up in my house and forget it. And that, that's the easy thing, right? Just turn a blind eye. If I don't acknowledge it, it doesn't exist. Well, that's not what God calls us to do, is it? And that's what we're going to find out this morning. Because in our passage this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 5, and actually the whole book of 2 Timothy, but that's where I'm going to focus this morning. Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus. And the context of Ephesus was a lot like what I just described here. Now, yes, there was sexual immorality and there was temple prostitution. There was all kinds of things. They didn't have the fires and the floods and stuff, but they had a context that it was very much a bummer to be living in that time. And it was very difficult to be a Christian in that time. It was very difficult to share the gospel there. Not impossible, just difficult. And so Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage him to stand fast, to do the work that he's been called to do. And that is the message for us today. In living in today's world, we need to stay focused on the mission. We need to cling to the relationship that we have with Jesus and not get our eyes fixed on the horizontal stuff. I'm not saying ignore this horizontal stuff, but not let what's going on in the world determine how we are going to respond and behave. And I want to give you some practical things about how to get over that this morning. Now, I want to make this statement right off the top. All of these verses that I just listed from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 4, verse 5, there's a lot of stuff in here, and I can't possibly cover it in the seven minutes that I have left. <laughs> Uh, 
But I'm, I'm going to give yeah, take 10. <laughs> He's so gracious. <laughs> I'm going to give you some of these things. And what I'm hoping you will do is take, take this and go back and read the whole book of 2 Timothy, not just these passages, but there's so much in here about what is applicable for us today with this. That, that, you, will, that you will take in and even find some more things other than what I'm going to share with you this morning. But the reason for the message this morning is so that we, will, that we will be reminded not to fix our eyes on the circumstances and things that are out here, but rather on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So this is our big idea. It's on your, it's on your outline if you uh, pick one up. It's this. If you don't get anything else out of this, please take this home today. Regardless of the confusion and turmoil that we see going on around us, God is still on the throne. There is still a created order, and he who is in us is still greater than he who is in the world. That is where our eyes need to be fixed. So with that in mind, let's take a look at this passage and see what Paul is encouraging Timothy and ultimately us to do and remember. The first thing that he tells us in verse 1 is this, is that difficult times will come on and off in these days. Verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Let's stop there for a second. The term last days can be kind of uh, misunderstood. Some have determined the term last days to mean these days at the very end, just before Jesus comes, and it's sometime way out in the future. And, and they, they, they define it as a chronological time. That's not the word that's used here. The word for time actually means period. It means, it means a, a season, a long season, if you will. And the last days actually refer to the time when Jesus Christ entered human history as a babe in a manger until he returns to establish his kingdom forever in his totality on earth and heaven. That is what the last days are. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 help us understand this when the author writes this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Folks, we are living in the last days. And how long is that? I have no idea. Nobody is supposed to know. Matter of fact, Jesus himself said, nobody knows the day and the hour when this all culminates except the Father. None of us know. And there's so many people out there that are trying to pinpoint that date. It was going to be October 14, 2025, you know, or whatever it is. Give it up. You're not supposed to know. Don't waste the time. Just be about the Father's business and leave the timing to him. So much simpler. Okay? All right, get off that soapbox. But he says that, the, that during these last days, there's going to be terrible times. Too often, I think we look at that phrase, terrible times, and we, we want to make that something that is, it, terrible times start, and then they just continue on forever through eternity. And that's not the meaning of the phrase. The meaning of phrase, terrible times, means seasons that come and go. There's going to be terrible times sometimes throughout the next however many years until Jesus comes. Some periods of time are going to be worse than others. Sometimes it's going to be harder than others to, to proclaim the name of Christ or to take endure the hardship of that. Sometimes it's going to be easier than that. 
And church history has, has bore this out. As you look back over church history, there's times when it has been very, very difficult to endure the hardship. Not impossible, but just more difficult than other times. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy is he doesn't, he doesn't want him to be caught unawares. He wants him to understand that terrible times will come. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, Colossians 4 tell us, make the most of every opportunity for the days are evil. That the days are going to vacillate in being evil. And so we need to take and make the most of every opportunity. The takeaway point here for this one is this. We should be aware that there will be times of trouble as well as times of peace or calmness in these last days. That we need to not give in to fear, especially if we're keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. His perfect love casts out fear, right? So, so if we cling to that, then we won't be taken in by the fear of all these things that seemingly seem to be going downhill, which they are. Things seem to be out of control and, and confusing. Why not? We don't have to get caught up in that. We don't have to be ensnared by that. Paul is telling Timothy, don't be caught by surprise with this. Let me give you a little illustration of this. Most people in their life, as they're going throughout life and, and uh, just going about their business, um, they, they live in what I call a green zone. Means they're just going on and they're not really thinking about anything that could happen. Um, whether they're driving down the road and they're not thinking about the fact that, well, maybe that car that's sitting there in the driveway or the one coming to them could possibly be an accident. People generally don't go through the mall thinking about, oh, this could be an active shooter problem at some point. It, people generally don't think like that. We just go about our business. If you don't believe me, do this next time you're at a stoplight. Pull up to the stoplight at a red light and look at the car beside you and see the person in the car. Guarantee you most of them are going to be doing this. They're just staring straight ahead. They know you're there, but they don't want to look at you. Because if they look at you, they acknowledge you're there. If they acknowledge you're there, something bad might happen. But if they don't acknowledge it, nothing bad's going to happen, right? And I, and I pull up to a stoplight, I'm just like... Okay, I played that up a little bit, right? But I do look at the people on my right or left, see what's going on. Why is that a bad thing, to be in a green, live in a green zone? You've heard of people who got caught in certain situations and they say, um, let's take an active shooter one. You hear, this, you hear this occasionally. When they were in an active shooter event, people talk about the fact that they couldn't move. They were in fear. They were paralyzed. They knew what was happening, but they just couldn't react. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't die for cover. They couldn't nothing. They couldn't do anything because they were in green. They weren't paying attention to their surroundings. They weren't prepared. And when the event occurred, they went to black. They went in shock. They couldn't move. They had no plan. They were overtaken. They were overwhelmed because they weren't aware. Contrast that, a lot of us in EMS and law enforcement things, we've been taught to live in yellow. Some people call us paranoid, that's okay. <laughs> we live in yellow, we're kind of like on caution, right? And then something boop, hits up there and Karen's doing something. So I go from yellow to orange. 
okay, I'm going to pay a little more attention to Karen now and wait and see what she's going to do. Yeah, she got that pen pointed at me. Here we go. And I'm going to wait and see what she's going to do, right? And then I start thinking about possible scenarios that Karen might do based on her behavior. And I've got, I'm starting to formulate plans, do all this. And then Karen does one of the things I think she's going to do when I move to red, which is action. I intervene or I flee or whatever it is I need to do, right? But I don't go to black because I'm ready. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. Live in a yellow world. Be prepared. Don't be overtaken when this stuff happens that you just become paralyzed. Know that these times are going to come and respond. Don't hide. Don't freeze. Don't go into shock. God's given you the power to deal with it. Deal with it. The second thing that I want us to take out of this is found in verses 2 through 5 that people will primarily be lovers of themselves in these times. In this passage, I'm just going to, I'm not going to go through all of these 19 adjectives, literally, that are here that Paul uses to describe the people. But I'm going to read these for you in the NIV, and then I'm going to give you the message version of how this is interpreted in street language. You be the judge, okay? Let's just, let's, let's read these together. So after he says this, beginning in verse 2, he says, People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a um, form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with these people. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Try this one. See if this sounds any better. <clears throat> Don't be naive. There are difficult times ahead. As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, dog-eat-dog, unbending, slanderers, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags, <laughs> addicted to lust, and allergic to God. They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes, their animals stay clear of these people. That any better? The point is, is that people are going to be all of these things. The one I want to key on is this. I can't key on all of them, but I want to key on this one about lovers of themselves. That in the last days, people are going to be full of selfish ambition. You see, this is what happens when you exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for things that form corruptible man. When God is no longer on the throne, when the created order is no longer observed, that selfish self it has to put on the throne because we don't like a void. So something has to be there to be in control. So it's either God or itself. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, we are given God's intended created order. You guys know that passage. It's a great commandment. And this is what Jesus said. He said, the first greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is what? You sure? Okay. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So, love God, love your neighbor. Where does self come? Basically third. 
It, it, other scriptures talk about the fact like Philippians chapter 2 tells us, don't only look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Okay? So the created order for all intents and purposes, to simplify it, is going to be this. Love God, love your neighbor, and if you do those two things, you're going to love yourself. That's going to come. It's loving yourself. When you switch one and three, and you put love self first, and then put love God at the end, you sandwich your neighbor in the middle, bad things happen. If God even makes the list, bad things happen. And so Paul is telling Timothy, look, people primarily are going to be lovers of themselves. They're going to have selfish ambition. The order is going to be turned on its head. The other two that I want to just mention are they're also going to be lovers of money. We've kind of seen that with the stimulus check thing going on, haven't we? I mean, the stimulus check is nice. Let's be fair. It is. It's a nice thing. But at what cost is it nice? At what cost is it nice? And then apparently there's more coming in. And so, and, and people are like, oh, yeah, just give me the money. I don't care about the fallout. As long as I got the money, it's okay. I don't, I don't care about the consequences. And lovers of pleasure. We see this, and this is largely behind a lot of the, the, the sexual confusion things that are going on. I, I need to be what makes me feel good. Not what God has said is created order, but what makes me feel good, what brings me pleasure. It's called hedonism, doing what makes you feel good. And what is right is what makes you feel good. There is no absolute truth. The truth is what you make it. That is the world we live in. The world's always been that way. It just seems like it's more intense right now. But I think it is. But we need to remember these things in this. Is that our response to this situation in living in today's world needs to be the same as that that Jesus did. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, through five, we are told to not only look out for our own interests, I quoted this earlier, we are told to not only look out for our own, own interests, but also for the interests of others. That takes selfish ambition out of the equation. If that isn't enough, verse five says this, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus do? He went to the cross for you, for me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the attitude we're to have. Not the selfish ambition that we see. And so the point is, we see the world living this. We are not to be that. We are to show them an alternative to that. We're to still love on these people regardless of what they do. Because on, a little later on in, in chapter 2 of Philippians, about verse 13 and 14, Paul says that this world is a crooked, dark, perverse generation in which you shine like bright shining stars as you hold out the word of life. That is the only light that people can have sometimes is the light, light we hold out through the word of God. Are we busy about doing the Father's business with that? Or are we focused on what's here? Where's our focus? The third thing that Paul points out to Timothy here is this. Expect to be misunderstood and malign if you are, if you choose to live a godly life in Christ. Verse 12 of chapter 3 says this. 
And Paul is taught, he's taught Timothy about how you, you have witnessed all the things that I, that I went through in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And, and you saw how I was close to death yet escaped. And God delivered me from all these things. Remember where Paul is. Paul is in prison for the second time. He's been sentenced to death. Nero has sentenced him to death and he's going to shortly be um, beheaded under Nero. And so for the last time he is writing to Timothy. This is the last Timothy's going to hear from him. And so Paul is needing to encourage this young guy because this is the last time he's going to have to do it. And so he says this to him in verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted while evil men and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, I want to point out something that he says a little earlier in verse 9. While these impostors seemingly go from bad to worse, Paul says they won't win the day. They will eventually be revealed for what they are, and it will be plain to everyone, whether people want to acknowledge it or not is another issue. But we can stand on the fact that they will be revealed, and they do not win the day. Evil does not win the day. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? And so we can stand on that if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus it doesn't matter what this world is doing around us. We can live in this world with that assurance that we are overcomers. Jesus himself said that if we love him, we can expect to be misunderstood. We can expect to be persecuted. We can expect to have trouble. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25, Jesus lays all that out right there. In John chapter 3, verse 20 and following, he talks about the fact that men love the darkness rather than the light. And when the light shines in the darkness, they rebel against it, they, they malign it, they insult it because, they, because it exposes their evil deeds. That's why many people do not like to read the Bible. That's why they don't want to hear you speak God's word to them. Because when you start speaking truth, it exposes what's wrong. And when you're living in selfish ambition, you don't want to hear what's wrong. Because no news is good news, right? If I don't hear about it, we're good. Even though it's been bad since the beginning of time, it's no longer bad because I'm just simply not acknowledging it. That's the way the world behaves. Expect to be misunderstood and maligned if you choose to live a godly life. If you, if you choose to take a stand for Christ and absolute truth, it doesn't, you, you can try to be as plain as you can, you can be as loving as you can, you still run the risk of being misunderstood. You still run the risk of being called a racist or a bigot or homophobe or whatever it is. You still run the risk of being insulted. But that is not to determine how we live life in today's world. It's God's call that needs to determine that in our life. The next one I want to point out is that Scripture is our means and guide through these times and at all times. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. This is well known. You've heard it quoted time and time again. But just to remind you, it is simply this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is the verse that people often leave off. But it's very important. So that the man of God or woman of God or child of God 
may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul lays out here that, that if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and, and when we, we embrace the word that he's given to us, we find that the word is good for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness. Teaching has to do with the truth that God wants us to know about him and life and etc. There are propositions that scripture has for us. It, it, is, it is profitable for that, that it reveals those things that we need to know there. Rebuking. It shows us where the errors in our life and what needs to be corrected. Correction. What needs to replace the error that was exposed? Not only does it tell us this is wrong, it tells us this is, this is what's right. This is what needs to be in place. Selfish ambition is wrong. What is correction? Selflessness. As an example. And for training in righteousness. What do I need to continue to grow up in? This relationship, we talk about the relationship in Jesus that we have. And, and, and we talk a lot about the fact that we don't earn that relationship. We're given that relationship. And that is true. But sometimes that phrase gets misunderstood. Some people think that, okay, well, I've been given the relationship. Now that means I don't need to do anything. Right? I don't need to cultivate the relationship I have with Jesus. I just need to sit back in my easy chair and drink Starbucks coffee. And that was a hit on Pastor Sean. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and, and, just, and just kind of let this go. Let me ask you a question. Those of you that are married, if you just said, let's pick on the guys, why not? Guys, if you just said, yeah, I'm married. That's all I need to do. I don't need to cultivate this relationship with my wife. How will that work with you? <laughs> just take a look around you at the divorce rate. Because that's why a lot of people get divorced, because they don't cultivate the relationship. They don't know who that person is that they married, because they, they don't want to know. They're lazy or lackadaisical or whatever else it is. They, they just don't care. Maybe they've never been told to be fair. Maybe they never knew what they were getting into. But it doesn't work. It's the same with our relationship with Jesus. You want to get to know Jesus? It's not going to happen by putting your Bible under your pillow and sleeping on it. You got to read it. You've got to experience it. You've got to let it affect you because what? The word of God is dead and not working. No, it's living and active, right? Sharper than any double-edged sword. Hebrews 4, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Living in today's world, we need to live through the word of God by the power of his Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it tells us the Spirit empowers us to understand the Word of God, even the deepest mysteries of Him. We can do this. And finally, we are to keep our head and do our job in this world. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge both the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Sounds like God's word, what it does again. With great patience and careful instruction. For a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you... Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. 
do the work of an evangelist. Discharge the duties of your ministry. He says basically this in verse 5. This is the part I want to focus on. He says to Timothy, don't freak out. Keep your head. Pay attention to the calling that you have. Do the job you've been called to do. And that is the charge to us. We need to keep our heads in this world that's going on around us. It's easy to lose our minds if we focus on all of the stuff that's happening out here. I'm not saying ignore this stuff. We, have to, we need to deal with it. But we need to deal with it the way that God has told us to deal with it. And one of the ways he's told to deal with it is in that passage I just read, which is with great patience and careful instruction. Even if you're misunderstood, real quick. I have, some, uh, I have a couple of friends, one of them's gay and the other one's lesbian. And for a long time, for about seven, eight years, well, three, three or four years, I've, I've known them for about seven or eight years, about the first three or four years, they hated me. Wouldn't even, wouldn't even basically give me the time of day. You know why? Because they knew I was a pastor. They knew I was a pastor. And they made the assumption that because I was a pastor, I hated them because I knew their lifestyle. Now, to be clear, I don't agree with their lifestyle. And they know this. They know I don't agree with their lifestyle. But to them, they felt if I didn't agree, I have to hate them. Therefore, they must hate me first. And so for three or four years, I just loved on these people. I just tried to build rapport with them. Just tried, just tried to reach them with great patience, careful instruction, with the love that Christ would do. Was it easy? No. There were times I wanted to give up more than once. Like, fine, whatever. You know. But God would come back and go, no, you... Back over there. Today, I have a relationship where I can talk with these people, and they know where I stand, but they know I don't hate them. They know that I see them still as a, as a person that Christ died for, whether they acknowledge it or not. That they are not trash. Because that's often what they think Christians think of them, that they're trash. And they're not. They're people. They're rebellious people, but they're people. And we need to love on them. Because sometimes the only glimpse of Jesus they may get is what we're shining out to them. Go back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. The crooked, dark world that we live in, we can shine like bright shining stars as we hold out the word of life. We let the Spirit do His job. Keep your head. Endure the work. With great patience and careful instruction. All right, worship team, why don't you come up as I close out here the final thoughts. I want to restate the big idea here. I think it's important for us to keep this in mind, especially as we're living in this world around us that we see going on today. It's this, regardless of the confusion and turmoil that we see going on around us, God is still on the throne. There is still a created order and he who is in us is still greater than he who is in the world. That is where our eyes need to be fixed. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 is our congregational reading. I want to read those two verses again. I want to add verse 3 to this. Let these words soak in. Meditate on these. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. 
And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and author of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Father, remind us daily that it is you that we need to keep our eyes fixed on. That is because of you in us that we are more than overcomers because you loved us. And Lord, that the, the confusion of this world does not have the day. That we can escape the corruption of this world. That you have given us that opportunity as we continue to draw near to you. And while we don't understand all that that means of how we're going to be able to escape or even to, to be strengthened to go through it, any combination therein, Lord, we, we know that you have promised that. And so we just trust you. Lord, increase our faith that we might have that focus, that we will not be caught unawares, that we will not be entangled by those cares that the world so easily throws around and the confusion that seems to dominate the world we live in. And I close with this passage from Philippians as an encouragement to us as we leave and close this prayer. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete of being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. God bless you. You all have an awesome week, an awesome day. And we'll see you either at family camp or we'll see you when I get back on the 8th here for worship together. You're dismissed.